1898, a physician by the name of Habel reported the case of a woman with facial tick-like movements affecting just one half of her face. Now, this was not an unprecedented case. What was a bit curious to Habel and to subsequent generations of neurologists and physiologists was that this patient had developed a stroke affecting the arm and the face of the same side. The patient had become hemiplegic. An unfortunate outcome, for sure. But the facial spasms continued. In their report, Dr. Habel and colleagues suggested that such a hemifacial spasm must have originated beneath the level of the cortex and even below the level of the cerebral hemisphere where the stroke had occurred, probably even at the level of the peripheral nerve or the nucleus itself. Several years before this paper, a team of veterinarians had also published an interesting observation in a dog. The dog had also manifested this unique pattern of unilateral facial twitching, a lot like what had been seen in humans, and just like what Habel's team had seen in their patient. Anyway, so these veterinarians, in the spirit of science at the turn of the 20th century, they sought to rid this dog of the facial twitch it had by resecting the contralateral cortical gray matter, which they had presumed to be responsible for this seizure-like phenomenon. But it didn't work. So they resected the subcortical white matter and the basal ganglia. And still the spasms continued. Then they resected the cerebellum, but to no effect. Ultimately, they lesioned the facial nerve nucleus of the poor animal, and the tics completely ceased. At the Salpetriere in France, Joseph Babinski, a master clinician with many hats, was one of the earliest to suggest that these unilateral facial twitches must be the consequence of an irritated facial nerve, a belief that was seemingly independently surmised by several academics in the early 1910s. And today, more than 100 years later, we still recognize this to be a cause of the majority of these cases, some sort of irritation by a vascular loop, a compressive lesion, or demyelination. Welcome back to Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine, and sometimes a little bit of science and history that come with it. I'm your host, Jim Siegler, and this week on the program, we are going to revisit an older show from the Brainwaves archive, a show we originally aired in January 2017, and we've remastered it for this week, a show all about the facial nerve. We're focusing on the facial nerve today, just the nerve. And it shouldn't surprise you that it's one of the most complicated cranial nerves. And fair warning, some parts of this episode get pretty dense. But it's a quick episode, and I think we can make it worth your while. Let's get to it. Practically speaking, it's easier to talk about what can go wrong with this nerve if we start proximally and work our way distally. While the facial motor nucleus is innervated by an unusual arrangement of glutamatergic corticobulbar fibers, the dorsal motor nucleus receiving input from both primary motor cortices and the ventral motor nucleus receiving input from the contralateral motor cortex, we won't be talking about these descending tracks. It's only important to note here that the dorsal motor facial nucleus is responsible for why central nervous system lesions spare the frontalis muscles. Because the temporal branch of the facial nerve from the contralateral dorsal facial motor nucleus compensates for it. Now that sounds pretty dense, but it's relatively straightforward. A lesion above the facial nucleus spares the forehead because the other dorsal facial motor nucleus will send off fibers to the upper facial muscles. 
Obviously, we were eventually going to talk about Bell's palsy in this episode, so we might as well get this out of the way right here. Bell's palsy, or any peripheral disturbance of the facial nerve, is really interesting to conceptualize because it tells you so much about the function of the facial nerve in addition to what you already know about its somatic efferent fibers. Because most patients with what looks like a Bell's palsy will have facial nerve inflammation just as it exits the pontomedullary junction, all downstream pathways are compromised. For instance, there's a somatic afferent fiber called the nervous intermedius of Reisberg, which I just call the nervous intermedius, that conveys tactile stimuli from parts of the external auditory canal. The nervous intermedius is actually the nerve highway that exits the pontomedullary junction separately from the remaining fibers of the seventh nerve, and it eventually rejoins the facial nerve after both have entered the internal acoustic meatus, just next to cranial nerve 8. The nervous intermedius also provides visceral afferent information from the anterior two-thirds of the tongue via projections from the geniculate ganglion. If you imagine this as a highway, the visceral afferent fibers run along with the somatic sensory fibers from the mandibular branch of trigeminal nerve V3. Take the first exit to the chordae tympani, park at the geniculate ganglion, and enter the brainstem through the facial canal to synapse on the nucleus of the solitary tract in the medulla. So next time when you're seeing a patient and you're thinking, hey, you might be having a Bell's palsy. You might want to check out some of these other features, like taste on the tongue, sensation to the external auditory canal, hyperacusis, and so on. One thing I wanted to mention about Bell's palsy before we go on here is to correct a misconception. I've heard stories from medical students or residents presenting a case of lower facial weakness, and they felt like the patient was totally faking it. They would say, but when I said a joke, the patient was able to activate the facial muscles a little more. Well, this is a well-documented phenomenon of a mimetic response, or an involuntary facial activation. With large cortical lesions, the mimetic response of a smile or laughter may be stronger than the volitional response. So you can't completely discredit the patient when their smile gets wider after you make a joke. But a Bell's palsy, it doesn't do that. An involuntary facial activation is just as weak as a voluntary activation in a peripheral seventh. As far as etiologies go, by definition, Bell's palsy is idiopathic. 60-75% to 75% of cases of peripheral 7th nerve dysfunction are grouped in this catch-all diagnosis. So, unless there are specific risk factors like a recent tick bite, intravenous drug use, or unusual findings on your review of systems, experts recommend against diagnostic testing. But when the light bulb goes off in your head and you're thinking, man, I wonder if this patient's obesity, polydipsia, and polyuria have something to do with the facial nerve palsy. Maybe you should check an HbA1c. Or for patients with xerostomia and xeropthalmia, you might check Sjogren's antibodies. Or Lyme in patients with outdoor exposures or recent tick bite, or HIV or sarcoidosis or amyloidosis, or MRI for a pontomedullary meningioma if the history is suspicious. Keep these considerations open if the exam or the history are suspect. But what if you see a patient with recurrent Bell's palsies or bilateral Bell's? That's definitely when you want to start considering these alternative diagnoses. According to the literature, Bell's palsy recurs in about 10% of patients, which is about the same rate of recurrence for GBS. I've seen two adults so far who've had a recurrence of Bell's palsy, meaning recurrence of an idiopathic facial nerve palsy, and there was nothing to explain it in either of them. So it does happen. Don't think it won't. And there are other things which can cause a recurrent Bell's. Things like myasthenia gravis can do it, sarcoidosis, Lyme disease, and definitely tumors of the pons or brainstem, things like meningiomas, lymphomas, or gliomas. As far as bilateral facial weakness is concerned, 
The facial nerve or neuromuscular junction disorders can be chronic in newborns or children with congenital myasthenia, or they can be acute and progressive in cases like meningitis and syphilis, infant botulism, Guillain-Barre, myasthenia gravis, sarcoidosis, Lyme disease, and several other rare acquired syndromes. Sometimes it can be fun to play detective in neurology. In one of my adult patients with a history of Bell's and no residual facial weakness, who presented with his second episode of Bell's, I was able to determine which side of the face had been affected all those years ago. A jaw wink was present on the side that was not involved in his current Bell's palsy. And by jaw wink, I mean that with movement of his jaw, his eye would blink at me. Pathophysiologically, this occurs with aberrant regeneration of the peripheral seventh nerve, also called synkinesis. The nerve reaches out and it innervates a muscle it's not supposed to. So instead of reaching the zygomaticus, it may innervate the orbicularis oculi, causing you to blink whenever you smile. Perhaps more disturbingly, the symptoms referred to as crocodile tears occur when the parasympathetic branches of the geniculate ganglion, which should grow back to the submandibular and sublingual glands, get lost along the way and they find themselves entering the greater superficial petrosal nerve, innervating the lacrimal gland. In place of salivating, these patients will also cry. There's also a gustatory sweating phenomenon, where the stimulus of food causes one side of the face to sweat, and a few other aberrant regenerative syndromes of the facial nerve. Now that we're done with Bell's palsy, we can briefly review some of the other disorders affecting the seventh cranial nerve. For this part, it might be worthwhile to Google an image of the facial nerve, just to see a graphic of all the branches of the facial nerve. Starting most proximally inside the cranium, and you probably won't see this as much, but a fracture of the temporal bone can compromise facial and vestibulocochlear nerve function since they both course through the internal acoustic meatus. The first major branch of the seventh nerve, the greater superficial petrosal branch, takes off in the earliest segment of the facial canal, in a particular part called the labyrinthine segment, where the geniculate ganglion rests. And like I just said before, the greater superficial petrosal branch is the nerve that gets hijacked after Bell's palsy when the patient develops crocodile tears. But more importantly than crocodile tears is the Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Technically, Ramsey-Hunt is the syndrome described by inflammation of the geniculate ganglion in the setting of a latent varicella zoster activation. Because the geniculate ganglion is involved, any of the axons that project from it may be affected. I typically think of herpetic eruptions in the inner ear with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome because the sensory nerve to the inner ear branches off the facial nerve distal to that geniculate ganglion, but you can also have herpetic eruptions of the anterior tongue and the palate. And obviously, this occurs in the setting of a peripheral appearing facial palsy. Unlike in typical cases of Bell's palsy, however, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is distinguished by this incredible sharp pain. So keep that in mind when you see a patient with pain who you suspect to have Bell's palsy. Moving on to the second segment of the facial canal, this part actually lies within the inner ear and is called the tympanic segment. Here the nerve is vulnerable to irritation from otitis media in children, and inner ear infections may cause a facial weakness with an autonomic impairment in one out of every 20,000 patients with otitis media. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but think about how many kids get ear infections every year. Also, within the tympanic segment of the facial canal, a cholesteatoma can compress the facial nerve, producing similar symptoms. ENT surgeons have to be exquisitely careful not to damage the facial nerve here during these excisions. More distally in the facial canal, just before the nerve exits at the stylomastoid foramen, the nerve to the stapedius and then the chordae tympani take off. A specific fracture of the inferior portion of the temporal bone may affect the facial nerve distally to these branches, 
leaving the patient with facial motor and somatic sensory deficits to the external acoustic canal in the absence of hyperacusis. Remember, the nerve to the stapedius just took off here at the pyramidal eminence of the facial canal. The chordae tympani also takes off in this distal segment of the facial canal, and as you remember, it provides sensory input of taste from the anterior ipsilateral two-thirds of the tongue. And finally, just as the facial nerve exits the cranium of the stylomastoid foramen, it gives off a somatic sensory branch, the sensory auricular nerve, which subserves the external acoustic canal. You can imagine, in cases of parotid tumor, the remaining functions of the seventh nerve would be compromised, with the exception of the sensory auricular nerve. So, parotid tumors, unless they're extremely large, should spare the sensory dysfunction of the skin inside the ear. Like I said, this was going to be dense, so let's go over that one more time. The path of the seventh nerve. It enters the internal acoustic meatus with cranial nerve 8 and the nervous intermedius, which eventually joins the rest of the seventh nerve in the facial canal. The first clinically relevant branch is the greater superficial petrosal nerve, which originates at the geniculate ganglion, lying deep within the labyrinthine segment of the facial canal. And again, the greater superficial petrosal nerve innervates the lacrimal gland. Greater superficial petrosal nerve, geniculate ganglion, crocodile tears. The next branch of the facial nerve takes off at the pyramidal eminence of the facial canal, the nerve to the stapedius. Injury here, or more proximally, causes hyperacusis, but you can imagine that the patient may have sensory neural deafness in the event of a temporal bone fracture that severs the eighth cranial nerve in addition to the seventh. Next, after the takeoff of the nerve to the stapedius, also in the pyramidal eminence of the facial canal, the chordae tympani emerges. And you'll recall that the chordae tympani subserves taste and parasympathetic innervation of the submandibular and sublingual glands. Finally, as the nerve exits the stylomastoid foramen, it sends off its final sensory auricular nerve. That's a lot of anatomy. Let's take a break from that and never go back to it. While for the most part, disorders of the facial nerve result from an impairment in nerve function, there are other conditions where abnormally enhanced function of the facial nerve causes problems. In the movement disorders clinic, this commonly manifests as hemifacial spasm. Usually, an adult in their 50s or 60s will tell you the story of a facial twitching on one side that began insidiously, sometimes starting with the eye, but progressing to involve the entire hemiface. It happens sporadically throughout the day, it may be nearly continuous in severe cases, there's no real pain, no dysautonomia, no other symptoms associated with it, although the majority of causes are attributed to compression and eventual demyelination of the seventh nerve by a tortuous branch of the basilar artery. The symptoms typically resolve with decompression, but surgery is risky. Sometimes you can also see a hemifacial spasm in the setting of a basilar aneurysm, a vestibular schwannoma or meningioma, or rarely in multiple sclerosis. It's important to distinguish hemifacial spasm from blepharospasm here because they're managed quite differently. Blepharospasm, unlike hemifacial spasm, is actually a form of a focal dystonia in which the eyelid involuntarily twitches, no lower facial involvement here, and it's relieved by botulinum toxin injections. Also, unlike hemifacial spasm, it often affects both sides of the face, both eyes, and it's associated with some pain usually due to dryness of the eyes. A disorder similar to hemifacial spasm, also worth distinguishing here, is facial myokymia, in which the patient will have what's described as a rippling activity kind of moving up or down across the hemiface. I like to think of hemifacial spasm as involuntary facial movements of larger amplitude and facial myokymia movements as being smaller amplitude. Facial myokymia often results from demyelinating disease of the pons and medulla, 
a brainstem glioma, or more peripherally in the nerve, as we see sometimes in cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the last thing that we're going to talk about are the parasympathetic functions of the seventh nerve. We've already mentioned them briefly, but it's worth reviewing once more. In conditions like ALS, there may be appropriate but unwanted function of the lingual branch, which goes to the submandibular and sublingual salivary glands. As Dr. Elman discussed in episode 34 on ALS care, the submandibular gland accounts for the majority of continuous oral secretions, about 50 to 60 percent. So this gland can be targeted with botulinum toxin injections for patients with sialuria due to ALS. It could also be used in cases of Parkinson's disease or other neurologic disorders with autonomic dysfunction. All right, we've talked for at least 15 minutes here. I think we should probably go ahead and wrap this up. The facial nerve is very complex, has multiple parasympathetic and somatic functions. And it's important to kind of understand and recognize the anatomy of this nerve as it courses through the various compartments within the temporal bone and the different types of diseases that can affect it. So that wraps up our show from 2017. Hopefully it sounds a little clearer this go around. We can't fix all of them. And if you're looking for more related neuroanatomy content, take a look into the Brainwaves archive. We've got shows on foot drop, ulnar neuropathy, conduction block, and many others. Also, if you haven't rated the program yet, please take a moment now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Let us know how you think we're doing. The Brainwaves Podcast is produced by myself, Jim Siegler. Music this week was courtesy of Marcos H. Bolanos, John Watts, and Lee Rosefear. Sound effects by Mike Kunig and Daniel Simeon. Stay tuned in the next couple of weeks. We've got shows on the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, primary angitis of the central nervous system, and the ictal-interictal continuum. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening.